So we had these lines of inquiry running, and as we were really getting going on these, we had a disastrous setback because by that time it was the summer of 1983, and in the summer of 1983, Caroline Hogg, the wee five-year-old, was abducted from Portobello. Take a step back a minute and think about it. Here we were in Lothian and Borders Police. Now, it was a big force. We had 3,500 officers. We had another 1,500 support staff. So we were a big unit of 5,000 people. We weren't a small force by any manner of means. But we were faced with three quite difficult and protracted murder investigations going on. We had the World's End murders of 1977, which were still going on and would run on for many years. We had Susan Maxwell's disappearance. She disappeared in the summer of 1982. And now we had Caroline Hogg, who disappeared in the summer of 1983, just three or four months after Sheila's death. And the disappearances of Susan Maxwell and Caroline Hogg were linked. There was no question about that. They were the same person. So we had two lots of serial killers on the go, plus Sheila's death. Hi, Tom. How are you today? I'm very well, Simon. I'm very well indeed. Tom, last episode we were chatting about this uh, horrible case you had, uh, Sheila Anderson. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just maybe recap for us, maybe bring people up to speed, because there are so many issues involved here because of that era when drugs were becoming prevalent throughout Scotland, when the police were changing in lots of ways at that time for different reasons, so many major inquiries ongoing, and I think violence and theft were a big part of that era, more so than they are now. So maybe recap, we maybe lost a wee bit of sight of the actual murder inquiry regarding Sheila because of these issues. But some of them are so important that I want to go into them a wee bit today as well. So can you recap for us the Sheila story? Yeah, and you're right. It was a particularly violent and difficult decade that, not only in terms of the victims, but also in terms of police resources. And I'm going to speak about that in a wee while too, because this murder investigation and other ones we were dealing with in East of Scotland over that period really stretched us. I want to talk a wee bit about that too, because you never hear about that when you read about true crime. You never hear about the actual capacity of forces to deal with these crimes. So just to recap, 7th of April 1983, a woman, a young woman, is found down on the foreshore near Granton, near one of our big housing estates, obviously being crushed by a car. We identify the girl as Sheila Anderson, local girl, lovely local girl who unfortunately has fallen victim to heroin and has found herself as a street sex worker. And from the sightings we have of Sheila towards the end of her life, The day before she was found dead, the night before she was found dead, we know that she was working on the street and we actually have sightings of several punters who were speaking to her up until about half an hour before her body was found. So we're concentrating very much on that street sex industry in Leith, which has been there for hundreds of years and which we thought we had good control of and we knew all about. And when we turned over the stone, we find out that our intelligence was completely obsolete. And I think there's an important point to make here, Simon, that if you are complacent about your intelligence picture, you're almost certainly in jeopardy. And we thought we knew exactly what was happening in Leith, and we didn't. And I suppose there was a lesson there to us about constantly testing your intelligence picture 
Don't assume that you know what's happening in the drugs trade, what's happening with armed robbers, what's happening with this and that. Because the minute that you think you know, then you're placing yourself in danger. And you've got to keep testing. And sometimes you do that by running a UC operation. I know UC policing, undercover policing was one of your things you did. Sometimes you do that. Other times you test it in other ways. We were caught napping in the early 80s because what had happened was the old-fashioned street women, the older women who were fairly tough and fairly resourceful and could look after themselves, they had gone and they had been replaced by very young, very young girls who were chaotic drug users or supporting other people who were drug users. And when we looked at the punters who were coming in to use the services of these girls, we found that they too had changed. And they were not the old-fashioned sailors and people that used to treat sex workers. They were predators coming in from all over Scotland and from the north of England to prey on these girls, some of them violent criminals. At that stage of the investigation, we had literally opened the box and we found that we were facing a mess that we never imagined we had. Tom, there's so much in there to unpack that we weren't all doing this episode. But there's one thing I'd like to just touch on because it covers police work in general and maybe lots of other things along the way, is that intelligence, that awareness of what's going on in the streets. And it reminds me of the murder inquiries. We talked about Bible John. We've talked about lots of different murder inquiries on here and we'll do many more on Time Time Inc. But those assumptions, as soon as you put the blinkers on, if you like, and say that's a fact, and it's not been tested properly. It's not been corroborated. It's not been stood up, we would have called it back in the day. As soon as you do that, you close off so many other avenues of inquiry. And that reflects what you're saying here about the sex industry on the streets and every other black market industry like drugs and whatever. As soon as you think, I know what's going on here, then you close your mind to all the data. And I think that's the trick of being a successful senior investigating officer, if you like, or murder team, is to keep the net as wide as you... We spoke about it before with you, spoke about linking murders. When you link one murder with another, you close off so many avenues of inquiry that need to be explored properly all the time. So that's quite a nice insight, what you're talking about there with our crime intelligence. If I could just quickly, because as you know, I've got a vested interest and trying to change our drug laws. And I just want to touch a wee bit on prohibition there because the sex industry, as you said, is hundreds of years old. We're all aware of the adage that it's the oldest profession in the world. And yet we criminalize it. And that's what's causing this problem in the 80s is because it's a criminal activity. The police have no regularity, responsibility there. Nobody does. There's no health input. There's no licensing, there's no observation going on. And what we did by making it criminal for the girls, not for the punters, not for the, the people using the girls, we ostracized them from the mainstream, made them criminals, and left them wide open to darker forces that you've just touched on there about uh, organized crime coming in, which they will do in any walk of life where we leave a vacuum, where we leave it unattended and unregulated. That's right. One of the problems we had, whereas we had informal relationships with uh, some of the older street women, 
With the young girls, we didn't. Most of these young girls had come out of the care system. They had very poor relations with authority figures. Most of them had been already predated upon by men. And so the last thing they were going to do was come up and speak to a policeman. And it took us quite a while to make these relationships. And when we did, we found a, a, a cesspit of victimization, rapes, attempted murders, very serious assaults, a whole underbelly of violent crime, of which we had no idea was going on. And it was only by good luck that there had not been murders before, because some of the assaults were so severe. But even then, even though the girls had been seriously assaulted, sexually and physically, they still did not have the confidence to go to the police. And so there was a huge public safety issue there, which we identified as needing to be urgently addressed. And I always remember, uh, and I may have mentioned this before, that the, the old head of CID, Brian Cunningham, he made it very clear. He said, look, we've got to tidy this up. He said, because otherwise we're going to have a lot of serious crime and a lot more victims. So we started seeing the girls in a different way, not nuisance offenders, which sex workers are, are traditionally seen as, but actually as victims, and because that is what they were. And we tried then to route them into some kind of help and assistance. We also set up a zone of discretionary prosecution. So it wasn't a no-go zone, but it was a, a, an area of the city round about Leith where we made an informal agreement with the groups who looked after, the voluntary groups who gave assistance to sex workers and said, look, if within this area here you have only a dozen to 20 girls on the street and if there's no trouble and if there's no complaints and if there is no crime, no pimping or drugs or assaults and robberies, then generally speaking, we will find other things to do because we're busy. But if you break the covenant, then we'll come in and we'll enforce the law. And that worked really well for a number of years. And I'm convinced not only did it prevent a lot of serious crime, but also prevented the spread of disease. Because, of course, just a few years after Sheila was killed, HIV and AIDS came in. We had to find a pragmatic way of dealing with it. The problem was, though, Simon, the problem was that there was no legal foundation for what we were doing. and. When I think back on my police service, <laughs> I find out that quite a lot of the things we did <laughs> no legal foundation. <laughs> Tom, it's fascinating listening to what you were saying there because we're talking about the 80s. We're talking about the sex industry on the streets of our capital city. Nothing's changed to this day because of the law is still the same. The laws are pretty much still the same. Was there not a politician back in the day, Margot McDonald? Was it McDonald? Yes. Who tried to get uh, laws changed. I think she did have some trials that went on, maybe alongside what you're talking about there. But does all of this not echo with the everything that we talk about on here about drug prohibition? And we've recently spoke to Peter Kaikan uh, with the safe consumption areas that are now becoming part of the political mainstream and the law uh, in Scotland that we're going to make trials. Is that not? absolutely reflected in what you've just said from 40 years ago. Prohibition and making people criminals and putting them outside the routes for help and support they obviously need is maybe not the way. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I beg to differ on one thing you said. You said that nothing had changed. Unfortunately, things have changed, yeah. not for the better. Yeah, well, 
because the tide's gone back out. And the reason it's gone back out is because of the internet, because of social media. The reality is that the advantage to the police of the zone of discretionary prosecution and all the arrangements we made, no matter how informal, was that we were cited. We could see what was going on and therefore we could intervene. Now, I'm afraid to say the sex industry has disappeared online and we have no idea what's going on. We have no idea who's involved and we have no idea how many young women are being trafficked into the sex industry. Now, I would agree with you this. One thing's for sure. The sex industry is going on and always will go on as long as human beings walk the face of the earth. But in terms of police control and police intelligence and the grip on the sex industry, then I'm afraid we are now blindfolded just as we were prior to 1983. And this is a very lucrative market that we're talking about, Tom. Just like the drugs market, obviously, billions of pounds and dollars that we're talking about, just to enforce, try and enforce it. But this is a lucrative market. And I must admit, my knowledge on the, this side of it isn't as good as uh, it should be. But I know that, the, and it is in the drugs market, so I know that the drug, illicit drugs market, if you like, underpins just about every facet of organised crime, including people trafficking and the sex industry and firearms, supplies, even down to environmental issues. I think it's something that we really need to devote a few episodes to as organised crime, because I don't think people realise how much it pervades all of our lives at every level, including our very institutions, because where vast amounts of cash are involved, corruption follows not too far behind. So we're back in the 80s. You're putting in these initiatives, which I might say are 40 years ahead of their time, it sounds like, doesn't it? You can see the echoes of what Peter Kraikant and what they're trying in Denmark and places like that to provide for people who live out with a normal, i.e. homeless, poverty, addicted to substances, abused, handicapped many times, mental health issues. All of these things are ostracized out with the normal, and the task doesn't seem to be addressed. No, that's right. You're right. Various people came from all over the world to, to look at the way we managed the sex industry back in the, the mid to late 80s, all of which arose from Sheila's death, I've got to say. All of which came from that. Used to compliment us, say how far-sighted we were and how liberal we were and oh, how socially conscious we were. And none of that was actually true. What we were was being entirely pragmatic. We were trying to solve a problem, and that's what police leaders have to do. They have to try and foresee where the problems are going to be, and they have to be good problem solvers. And we were trying to solve a problem. We were trying to solve a problem where we had a huge area of potentially very violent and serious crime, which was out of our vision. We were trying to drag it into the light. It may not be what we wanted it to be, and we didn't particularly want to celebrate the sex industry, but since it was going to happen, we wanted to be in control of it and we wanted to be playing on the field, not standing by the sidelines watching it. But back to the murder, we had some forensic materials recovered. One of the things we had was that Sheila had been apparently run over by a car which was painted with a red metallic paint. And not just that, but it was a respray job. Very common in the day, people would do up old bangers and respray them. And we knew this because the paint particles of this maroon metallic paint had rust on the back of it. So somebody 
had clearly resprayed over a rusty area of metal. And our forensic people told us that it looked very much as if she'd been run over by a car, which was a red car, red metallic paint, and that had been a respray job, so it was an older vehicle. So, of course, that gave us another clue. We started looking for red cars. Uh, we started looking for red cars which were cruising in the red light area. And the one thing we learned very quickly was that the kind of people who frequented street prostitution didn't give up. Even though they'd been rumbled by the police, even though they'd been turned over and searched, sometimes even though they'd been taken home and their houses searched, they could not help themselves and they were back cruising in the red light district again. But then, of course, what we found was that some of them had access to several vehicles. Some of them would come in a company car, etc., etc., or a company van. There was all sorts of complications. So we had the vehicle inquiry, we had the forensics, and then we recovered Sheila's handbag. And that was about, from my recollection, it was about a fortnight to three weeks into the investigation where her handbag was recovered in a car park, a sort of a well-known sort of courting couples area down in East Lothian, very close to where one of the girls from the World's End murders had been found. No connection whatsoever, but it was interesting that we were only talking about half a mile away from where Christine, one of the World's End victims, was found. Now, that, uh, that gave us the idea that the person who had run her over had probably panicked. And when you panic, you tend to run for home or you run for a safe place. And so we thought then that the culprit might have come from down in East Lothian or the Scottish borders or even the north of England. Because as I indicated to you, we, we found that people were coming sometimes driving 100 miles to visit the streets of Leith at that time. Sheila had done this before. She'd fallen out with clients who had failed to pay or, or there was some uh, altercation. And we think that she climbed out of the car and that she went in front of the car to stop the person driving away to get her money. And we think that he then drove over her and probably reversed over her as well and then headed off. And as I say, only maybe... You know, 20 minutes later, he's driving home. And this is why we believed that always there was a link to East Lothian. Because after you've done something like that, you head for a safe haven. You don't drive off into the wild. You tend to go back to where you're secure. So we think he was heading down the East Coast. He saw the handbag was in the car. He pulled into the Bent's car park, which is a safe car park down in near Gullen, and he chucked it. And that's how we think the handbag got there. So we had these lines of inquiry running. And as we were really getting going on these, we had a disastrous setback because by that time, it was the summer of 1983. And in the summer of 1983, Caroline Hogg, the wee five-year-old, was abducted from Portobello. To take a step back a minute and think about it, here we were in Lothian and Borders Police. Now, it was a big force. We had three and a half thousand officers we had had another 1,500 support staff, so we were a big unit of 5,000 people. We weren't a small force by any manner of means, but we were faced with three quite difficult and protracted murder investigations going on. We had the World's End murders of 1977, which were still going on and would run on for many years. We had Susan Maxwell's disappearance. She disappeared in the summer of 1982. And now we had Caroline Hogg, who disappeared in the summer of 1983, just three or four months after Sheila's death, 
and the disappearances of Susan Maxwell and Caroline Hogg were linked. There was no question about that. They were the same person. So we had two lots of serial killers on the go, plus Sheila's death. And it was interesting because in crime fiction and in a lot of factual programmes, it gives the impression that there are endless numbers of detectives who can go and investigate crime. Of course, it's not true. Not every policeman makes a good detective, and not every detective makes a good major case detective. You have sprinters and you have long-distance runners, and I know a lot of very good detectives, worked with good detectives, who put them on a robbery, put them on some fast-moving investigation that lasts two or three days, and they were absolutely superb. Put them on an investigation that lasts for months, and it's not so good. We were constrained by limits of just people, of skilled detectives to take on all these investigations. And of course, we were also constrained by our equipment, incident rooms, and money. You should never forget money. All these things cost money. And unless your force is properly financed to deal with all these things, then you're very soon in trouble. And Can I ask you a question here? Yeah, of course. I had a, a murder in Govan in Glasgow uh, of a prostitute. I just said a murder. It was actually not a murder. She fell over her banister four flights up naked. The banister was almost above her chest, but she fell over the banister and died in the fall and was found naked in the stairwell. And it wasn't a murder. It was an accidental death or unexplained death at the time. Do you think the murder of that we're talking about here, the decisions that were made regarding the inquiry, do you think they were tainted or made deliberately with those financial considerations in mind? And do you think that decision was made because she was a prostitute and might have been made differently if she'd come from a different class? You're getting into the discussion about worthy and unworthy victims here. And it's a wider discussion. But yeah, you, when you look at the way that the deaths of certain people are approached vis-a-vis others, you cannot fail to conclude that some judgment has been made as to the worth of the particular victim. I'm happy to say that in terms of Sheila Anderson, no such consideration was made, certainly in our case. But like you, Simon, I have been involved and I've seen cases of unexplained death which could have been more fully investigated than perhaps they were. And one of the reasons for that was perhaps the view of a particular investigating officer, but also a pragmatic decision about resources. Could you actually do it? And I tell you, when you look at some of the smaller forces, as I've said, we were quite a big force. When you look at some of the smaller forces, I think these decisions were even more keenly felt. Did they have the resources to actually apply them, these investigations. The one that always strikes me is the decision taken in the year 2000 not to look further into the arrest of Angus Sinclair for the murder of wee Mary Gallagher through in Glasgow. And it was very clear that he was a person of interest and it was very clear that he may have other crimes to answer to. And the decision was taken not to investigate his other crimes. I'm talking about the murders of Annie Kenny, Hilda Macaulay, Agnes Cooney, 
all of which we've already discussed. And I don't know what was in the mind of the decision makers at that time, but one thing that could have been was just a pragmatic view of, look, we have all these current murders to deal with. And at that time, in fairness, Strathclyde Police was dealing with upwards nearly 100 murders a year. Again, coming back to this 1970s, 1980s, this decade of serious and violent crime, that carried on for quite some time. You know, if you're sitting there trying to juggle resources, trying to find murder squad detectives, trying to find Holmes equipment. When Holmes came in, it was another limiting factor. Mm -hmm. When we dealt with Sheila, we were still dealing on the old card index system, and all you needed was a whole lot of cards and a shoebox and somebody to administer it. But when you're talking about Holmes, it's a different matter. You need Holmes equipment. You need a proper incident room. You need an office manager. You need people who are trained in the Holmes equipment. These are all limiting factors, which may affect the judgment of somebody saying, look, a suspicious death, the lassie, she might have fallen over the banister after all. Let's just leave it at that. And if there's nobody there going to raise alarm, and if there's no grieving mother and father, and if nobody's going to particularly speak or raise their voice for the dead girl, then it's easy to treat in one particular way. The only person that raised his voice was me, but that's another story. We'll talk about that again because it raises lots of interesting points. I noticed there that when you came to the lack of resources and decision-making in one particular instance of Gallica, you referred that across to the west of Scotland and got it away from your patch. (laughs) I didn't mean to. It was an example. But listen, I'll tell you what, during that very busy period in the 1980s, where I'm talking about, where we had these three big investigations running, if somebody had come in and said, oh, listen, I've got some information about how we we could investigate a murder which took place 15 years ago and they've got this new information in, we'd have had to have taken a view on how we dealt with that. Yeah. Now, as it happened, when Caroline Hogg went missing, the murder inquiry into Sheila Anderson was drastically reduced, not closed down, but reduced. And myself and my team from the series Crime Squad were taken off yeah. it. Even though I was the deputy SIO, we were taken off it and sent down to Leith to begin working on the Caroline Hogg case. That was a decision taken purely pragmatically. There was only so many detectives. You could only put personnel into so many squads. There were some people you could take from uniform and make them up into acting detectives, and many of them did a fantastic job doing that. But there are limitations. And again, you see, we're talking about these murders, and I always come back. In the 1980s, 1984, we were very fortunate in that we got a first-class chief constable, Bill Sutherland. He showed his class. He was a very experienced officer, had been a detective, had been in senior command posts, but he knew what his role was, and his role was to sort out the politics and the money. Yeah. And he left the operation. He trusted the operational policing to people who were responsible. He did not meddle. But by God, I'll tell you, he made sure we had the resources and we had the money. And the only reason we were so well-placed later on in the 80s to develop forensic science, DNA, in its infancy, DNA was hugely expensive. You're talking about thousands of pounds every time you sent away a a sample. It was very much in its infancy. He made sure that we had the money to do our job. And, of course, you never see any credit for that in the press. It's all about the great detectives and how wonderful it all is. 
But behind all these great detectives, and there were a lot of them, good, good people, you've got to have somebody making sure they've got the tools to do the job. This is actually very topical, Tom, although we're talking about the mid-80s. I'm sure any serving cops that listen to us rambling on here will be very acutely aware of the cutbacks and the drastic shortage of resources that Police Scotland currently are experiencing. But we'll come back to that, no doubt. And I'm sure we'll get questions and, and statements in from listeners like we do every week here on Crime Time Inc. One thing I did want to just allude to slightly was that remember, I'm much, much younger, a couple of generations behind you, obviously. In the <laughs> mid-80s, I was a young detective. I wasn't so young after all. I was in my mid-20s. I was in, on the book, as you call it, at Govan, working in the CID at Govan. And Govan was one of the busiest. I'm not sure we were the busiest division, but we were one of the busiest, along with F, E, and D divisions in the city. And we were running at about 1,100 crimes a month. That's what the... It would go up seasonally, of course, November, December, etc. But that was roughly what we were dealing with, 1,100 crimes a month, which wouldn't mean much to any civvies listening to us, but it meant... And when a murder occurred or a serious incident occurred that needed an inquiry team set up, or some murder inquiry took away a couple of detectives from you to supplement their inquiries, as you've just alluded to, then we were left on the book. And many a time I remember being left on the book with a neighbour to cover the whole of government. So that was two of us working seven in the morning till seven at night, and another two would come on at seven at night until seven in the morning. And our job was to deal with all the day-to-day crime that was going on in government. Because it spirals down, doesn't it? And you're right, maybe the boss would manage to secure a couple of plain clothes guys who were working plain clothes by squad or whatever to come and give us a hand. But we were basically dealing with those same 1,100 crimes because nobody went out and told the Ned to slow down for a bit. So you've got serious assaults, you've got house breakings, you've got car thefts, you've got all the day-to-day crime that goes on in a division being dealt with by two detectives for 12 hours. And there was lots and lots of stuff went across the desk and they were lucky if they could get a phone call. You were just trying to keep your head above water. And if you came in in the morning and there'd been, we called them brown bag days, when there was bloodstained clothing and brown bags all over the office, then you knew that was going to tie up the day dealing with a serious assault and an attempt murder. And all these other mm-hmm. things uh, went by the board for the time being. And you never caught up. It's funny you say that, but I remember the early 80s, I was a DS down at a very busy station. And in the morning you come in and your CRs, your crime reports, you'd have a, a big wedge of them. And the art was, the real art was, sorting out which had any potential at all for investigation. And it was a shuffle job. You would sit there, you'd pell through them, and out of maybe 50 crime reports, you'd maybe get half a dozen that you thought, there's a prospect here. And you'd dole these out. And the rest of them, you'd tidy up your admin, make the phone calls, speak to the complainers, etc., etc. But the reality was, it was the art of the possible, and you had to deal with something you could make something of. What I used to say to the guys in my unit was that, Whatever you do, square things away every night before you leave your desk. Do not think for a minute that you're going to catch up in the morning because the morning never comes. 
It's eight o'clock in the morning and you come in and there's a big brown bag full of bloodstained clothing. And then the thing you were going to do the night before is left undone. And that's how you get into bother. That's how you get into trouble. There's more good detectives I know have fallen by the wayside oh. through admin glitches than I could throw a stick at. It's, it's a huge problem. And in that time, when everybody was busy, the survivors and the good detectives were those who could prioritise and cover all the bases. You might not be able to investigate the crime. You might not be able to get the culprit. But at least you could phone up the complainer and be courteous. Yes. So back to Sheila Anderson. So there we were, three and four months into the investigation, having uncovered all of this mess and having tried to put in mitigations to it, getting the social work involved, getting the local council involved, setting up a zone of discretionary prosecution, which took some time to do. A couple of years later, we appointed a prostitute liaison officer, which was a great move. It was a very experienced woman officer, Pat Ellis, who hugely experienced operational woman officer. She was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And she forged the relationships, the professional relationships with the street women that was an absolutely vital conduit of intelligence. And when some weird guy showed up on the street, we got to know within hours. When somebody was coming in trying to sell drugs, when there was an underager, because the good thing about the zone of discretionary prosecution was that nobody wanted to rock the boat. The girls who were working there were quite happy. They felt relatively safe. They could operate there. They were getting health advice. They were getting welfare advice. They were trying to be coaxed generally away from the scene. So they didn't want anybody coming in and causing a disruption. And so we tended to get very good quality information. And there was another murder of a sex worker which took place, I think it was a couple of years after, 85 or 86. And literally, while the poor girl's body was still warm, we had the name and registration number of the punter who she'd been with because of these links of intelligence. Tom, can you take us through that zone? Because I find that fascinating that we're talking about safe consumption rooms through here in Glasgow in 2023. And back in the mid-80s, you were talking about a zone, a safety zone for these street girls. Can you just tell us how that worked? It was a totally pragmatic consideration. The street scene down there was completely out of control and very, very dangerous. Now, we knew that if we tried to subdue the street scene, in other words, if we went in heavy-handed, all we would do is disperse it somewhere where we couldn't control. So what we did, we identified an area a triangle round about Coburg Street in Leith, which was quite well lit and which was quite close to one of the drop-in centres for street sex workers. And we said to the group who looked after the street sex girls, look, if you only have a certain number of girls working every night and if they are well behaved and if there's no complaints made and there's no pimping and there's no robbery and there's no street crime, then we will find other things to do. However, if you break the deal, if you break the covenant and there's trouble and there's crime and there's pimping or particularly underagers or drugs, and if we get a sniff of that, then we'll come in and enforce the law. The thing is, though, Simon, that was an entirely informal arrangement. The fiscal wasn't involved in that. Oh, yes, the fiscal was. Oh, yes, the fiscal was. And wholeheartedly agreed with it. Oh, yes, they were. But it was done on the basis of a conversation. There was never a written document about it because, of course, 
There was actually no legal basis for what we were doing, other than the old business about discretion of police officers. And of course, discretion is woven through everything that the police do. And the fiscal took the view, much as the Lord Advocate has taken recently in relation to drugs, that this was in the public interest. But of course, then what happened was, several things happened. Some years later, that area, that industrial area at Coburg Street became gentrified. Leith rose up and it is now a very fashionable place. And so people were buying expensive flats and didn't want to see street sex workers going about and all this. So it only lasted for a few years, but it lasted long enough to save lives, many, many lives in my view. It's very hard to prove a negative, but it also took place right at the crucial time in relation to the arrival of bloodborne viruses, AIDS and HIV. Right now, somebody in Edinburgh University is doing an academic study of the efficacy of it and the benefits of it. It'll be interesting to see what they come out with. But from our point of view, it was a very pragmatic response to deal with what was an incredibly dangerous situation. What changed other than that? Was it a new chief constable? Was it new enforcement laws? Or did it spread anywhere? Did anybody look at it and say, that's the way forward? Yes, there were. There were a lot of people who followed the model. But of course, the model was based on an informal understanding. That was the problem. And when it was challenged and when the area we were talking about became yuppified, for want of a better word, then it failed. But things were changing anyway. And by that time, the sex industry was changing and more and more girls were going online or moving into private flats. We've got to remember that the, the street sex industry is the tip of the iceberg. Underneath that is a vast industry involving flats, involving some hotels, involving saunas, and now, of course, principally, the online sex industry is enormous. It is hidden and it is very, very dangerous. Coming back to Sheila, we never did, or not up to this time, have we found a person responsible for killing Sheila Anderson. Now, it's not for the want of trying, and even long after my retirement, the investigation has been reopened several times, so it's very much still on the agenda. At the time of the murder, of course, there was a full forensic recovery done and swabs were taken and all sorts of samples were taken from the the body. And in time, there were DNA traces found. Now, since that time, numerous efforts have been made to identify the DNA traces to see if we could identify the man who had left them. And so far, that's been unsuccessful. But I hope in time that with new techniques, we do trace that man. uh, And I live in hope that we do. All we need is a name or a car registration number. And even though 40 years has passed, Simon, 40 years has passed, there is still information coming out. And every time I talk about the death of Sheila Anderson, I'm hopeful that the next phone call is the one that leads us to the person who killed her. Now, the person who killed her uh, may well be dead now himself. But uh, his relatives and familial DNA might lead us to the person responsible. And I would dearly love to see it because it is a case which has perplexed me for all of the 40 years. But here's the thing. Very few murders, you and I both know, bring anything positive whatsoever. 
Sheila's death, her life, her latter life and her death were utter tragedies linked to the drugs trade, which I know that you're very uh, interested in and a keen commentator on. So that was an utter tragedy. But actually coming from that total tragedy was a much greater understanding of what was happening with the sex industry and a much more pragmatic management of it. So that Sheila's death and what happened after Sheila's death, I think, saved an awful lot of girls like Sheila from the same fate as she suffered. And that gives me some small comfort, but I'd still like to see the crime solved. That's good to hear, Tom. And the reason for that is because you told the truth to each other. This is what's going on. You didn't try and hide it from each other. And you made decisions based on those facts of what was going on around about you. And I think that's an ongoing tribute, not just to Sheila, but to, to all the girls that have been suffering over the many years and, and longer than we can remember because of this sex industry, unregulated sex industry. Tom, that's uh, fantastic. Thanks very much again for doing that, for sharing that with us, because you were there at the front line. But in the meantime, I'll look forward to our next chat here on Crime Time Inc., Tom. Thanks very much, Simon, and thank you for hosting again. It's a very important case to me personally, but also because of all the changes it brought about. I still hope, I very much hope, I live to see the day when Police Scotland ring me and say, by the way, we've got a hit. We know who killed Sheila. It'll probably be a West Coast detective that sorts it out in the day, Tom. Don't worry. I would be delighted if it was. I would be delighted if it was a Martian. Speaks in Tom's hands. Bye, good night. Next time on Crime Time Inc. You had to have your exams, and, and so I passed my exams. Having passed my exams, this thing came up called the Accelerated Promotion Scheme. And it was a competitive exam, and then you went for a three-day interview at college. I had about five-year service. I'd spent almost three years in a very busy part. So in terms of any questions about practicalities... Yeah. I'd actually done it. I hadn't just read about it. I'd done it. And so I was well placed. So I passed the exam and the chief constable on the selection panel was David McNee, the famous David McNee, Sir David McNee. And I passed through and I got an accelerated promotion course. And years later, years and years later, I met Sir David McNee. He came through to police headquarters at Fetis, and by that time I was the assistant chief. And I said, Sir David, you may not remember, but you gave me my first step up. You selected me for the EP course. He said, we all make mistakes, he said. (laughs) (laughs) 